Joey, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 69 <laughs> of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also, and... If you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the podcast, send them your favorite episode. Uh, Happy Sunday for me, the day I'm recording this. Uh, I feel a little (laughs) out of sorts. Uh, Our last episode was not great. And uh, so I took some time. I made some notes about the week, things I've been thinking about. Obviously, big things happening in the news this week. Uh, So I'm not making any promises. I just uh, just wanted to have my ideas sort of... uh, I don't know, more in place before we started. And then life happens. Uh, I was, I made a huge fucking blunder at work today. Um, I was supposed to facilitate some training. Uh, There's a volunteer component to my work. And uh, a big part of my responsibilities are training the volunteers. And uh, they had a training class today that I was supposed to be there for. And uh, I was going about my day. I was taking it easy. I was doing some reading. My brother FaceTime calls me, asks me what I'm up to today. And I'm like, not much. Got nothing going on. And then uh, probably an hour after I ended that call, I'm sort of laying here reading uh, The Adolescent by Dostoevsky, which uh, maybe we'll talk about. It's not that great. I'm almost done with it, which I'm uh, happy about, I suppose. But uh, I was laying there reading. I get a call from my supervisor asking me, where are you? And... I'm sure we've all had moments like that. It, it was like I got punched in the stomach immediately when I saw that. I have, I immediately understood uh, what I was not there for, what I was not doing, and what I was supposed to be doing. And it was like panic hit me like a bucket of water, which I think is a line from Reservoir Dogs. But immediately I just sort of like pulled up the document with the schedule and saw where I was supposed to be and where I clearly wasn't. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say I went into full panic mode because, um, you know, I I sort of realized I had dropped the ball. I guess it wasn't the end of the world, but I was very embarrassed. So I had to send out an email to all the people who were expecting me and apologize and uh, were trying to coordinate something else to, I don't know, um, create an alternative for that. Uh, particular training that they needed, but it was just one of those, (laughs) it was one of those things where, um, you know, I, well, I guess if I'm being honest, I guess as I've gone throughout the rest of my day, it hasn't affected me as much as I was sort of in, I don't know, I was sort of anticipating it would, but it's sort of funny that it's coming up because it kind of reminds me of something that happened a while ago. And I don't want to go into the details because it sort of involves finances and stuff. And I'm not even, actually, I do know why it came up. Um, I'm sort of uh, jumping back and forth in time here. But what I'm trying to get at is these times that you've had in your life where something comes up and you could either deal with it immediately and get it over with, right? Um, And I mean, for for me today, it was this, you didn't show up for training. Um, Do you... I don't know. I guess maybe this is not totally applicable because as an adult, I mean, you you are accountable to your bosses. But I guess uh, I've been in other situations where, uh, and other times in my life where I've sort of, you know, I don't what's the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, I've dropped some responsibilities or something. I've put off something I was supposed to do, and I don't know if it's shame. I don't. I think sometimes we frame it as laziness, but I think it probably has more to do with shame. But it's very easy for us to put things off and not do it. Like for example, 
what's coming to mind is there were plenty of times when I was younger, when I was going to junior college or whatever, where I was depressed, but I would get up, my alarm would go off and I would just hit snooze and I would not go to class. And it's like, even though you, even though you know, there will be eventual consequences, whatever you're dealing with in the present, that's keeping you from being able to do that thing. It's just easier to, to push it off. And I, I'm sure people do this with debt. I'm sure people do this with, uh, geez, I mean, probably all sorts of things, their health, but there was something about this incident that happened today with work that reminded me of times in my life where there's an uncomfortable thing and history and time and experience have just shown you if you just deal with this decisively now, you, you know, you can't completely delete the fallout or the consequences of how you're going to feel about this, but at least you can know that you did what you could about it, right? Like if I had just put it off until tomorrow, then I would be marinating and stewing and, um, thinking about this for the rest of the day. But if I do something about it now, at least I, I get it. I, I, I get that off my plate. Um, but I did know it was going to bother me for the rest of the day. And I felt embarrassed. I have felt a little guilty, especially, you know, <laughs> it's sort of humbling too. I don't know if that's the perfect word for it, <laughs> but it is a little humbling, especially at work as someone who I typically pride myself as somebody who gets things done, uh, who uh, takes direction very well. And if I'm told to do X, Y, or Z, I'm able to execute those things. Um, and I guess, I mean, to be <laughs> to be blunt, it's very easy for me to recognize when other people fall short of those standards and to feel frustrated and to um, want people to do better a lot of times and to feel frustrated when people don't do better. And uh, it's kind of a, you know, a sobering reminder, like, Hey, people are human, you know, um, it's difficult when you recognize a pattern in people's behavior. I think that's when it really bothers me when I feel like this, you know, I guess anybody can make mistakes, you know, uh, that's the platitude for this episode. But, um, so I don't know. I try to be kind, kind with myself about it. Um, but yeah, that's sort of what I was dealing with today. So that sort of took me off, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) took me off my game a little bit. I guess the other thing, obviously, that's happened in the news, I feel compelled to comment about, I don't really know what to say, but obviously, is the the storming of the Capitol that happened on the 6th. Um, You know, I, I mean, I feel like, you know, probably most people with the podcast feel like they have a hot take on this topic. I I don't. I, it's, it's just another another item on this litany of horribles that has happened throughout the last year that I should be surprised. I should be incredulous. Um, but in some ways I think I'm just, (laughs) I think I'm just numb. Um, it's, it's, it's awful, obviously. I mean, I certainly, I mean, there's four people dead now, you know, there was one woman who was shot. Apparently there's three people, um, who died, who died from medical related, um, uh, a response to the event. I'm not sure what the specifics of those are, but I think today they, for the fallen officer, they had, uh, the ceremony was today in Washington, DC. Um, but you know, as I was sort of thinking about this and gathering my thoughts about it, I was, you know, it wasn't entirely clear to me. I assumed that this event was organized on social media. Uh, there's a conservative social media site called parlor, which I only know about. I've, I've, referenced a few times this creative colleague of mine who is 
in the last year or so uh, sort of uh, moved over to the, the sort of alt-right or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I've seen him sort of broadcast the fact that he's on that website. So that's how I had originally heard about it. Um, and this person, interestingly enough, has been uh, curiously silent on this event since it happened. Um, didn't participate in it, but um, I, I, I just for someone who has who has for the last year been commenting a lot on politics, um, sort of this event seemed like the inevitable consequence of the type of rhetoric that he was espousing in terms of Donald Trump and his view on the presidency and the state of politics and you know, the social political climate that we're all living in now. And this person has been strangely mute on the topic. But um, I think the thing that a lot of people are, you know, clearly agree with me on is it's clearly instigated by Trump, you know, not, um, uh, not explicitly, but certainly implicitly. I think, uh, obviously, Trump's, you know, he's been sitting on a powder cake for a long time. I think he's been aware of that. And I think he's been inciting people to uh, to take action on his part. And, uh, I think he's been, uh, I don't think he's a particularly intelligent person, but he's been Spartan, uh, smart not to be explicit about it. Um, but I think he had to believe that people would take action at some point. I don't know what the people who stormed the Capitol were, were actually hoping to accomplish. Um, I mean, when you see the pictures, at least the way it's been portrayed in the media, it looks like a bunch of, uh, Trump bros and uh, sort of festival goers, like the type of people you would see at outside lands or uh, uh, not quite burners, but probably more Sasquatch or <laughs> I'm trying to think of some other uh, music festivals, but you know, the sort of festival kids. Um, and this poor guy, I sort of, you know, there's the guy who has the sort of horns. He's wearing the sort of Viking helmet and with the, uh, uh, the fur nape or whatever, if that's the right word for it. And he's got his face painted, painted uh, red, white, and blue. Uh, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you want to hold people accountable, but you also feel bad that this person, this individual, has become the face of this event. And you just think textbooks, history textbooks that are being printed next year are probably going to have this guy's face in it. I'm reminded of the uh, the standoff that happened in D.C. as well, I believe, with there was some private school and there was a very famous photo of a young white male wearing a uh, MAGA hat, a, a Make America Great Again hat. And he was facing off with someone who appeared to be a First Nations or Indigenous American uh, male with a with a sort of a, a drum. And they were sort of facing off, just sort of staring at each other. Um, I think the specifics of that event, I don't know exactly what happened, um, but that young man is like the, was like the face of white privilege and uh, the sort of uh, Trump bro attitude that was, uh, you know, just then, I think around that time, really beginning to percolate um, and sweep the nation. Actually, I, I parodied it in my video. If you see my music video, Time of War, uh, I reference that photo and uh, and actually sort of take on that role. You even see me banging the drum and, and all that sort of stuff. But um, uh, I guess I'm wondering, how are these people going to be held accountable? I mean... You know, this is probably the um, the most obvious comparison and, and what, what I think a lot of us are thinking. But, you know, what would have happened if these were black protesters? Um, there's no I mean, I just it's I just it, it's it's it doesn't make sense to me that people were able to infiltrate a government building and were not met with a military response. You know that. And in some ways, hmm, this is actually interesting. Uh, I'm thinking through this for the first time, but 
You know, uh, maybe, it, you know, it's it's actually been funny as I've been interested in, sh- you know, I've, I've talked about exploring this idea of buying a pistol. Um, and I actually had a shooting class yesterday, which maybe we'll talk about. But as uh, as I've been seeing videos on YouTube for guns, obviously YouTube's trying to determine what my area of interest are with with respect to this uh, content, right? And so I've been exposed to a lot of gun, gun culture videos, which are very uh, odious to me. Um, and my experience at the gun range yesterday actually confirmed a lot of this, that, you know, you have to be very careful when you get into things because although there may be something about that field that is very interesting to you and you want to maybe even continue to pursue the culture around that uh, activity, shooting guns specifically, is fucking spooky and uh, a lot, there's a lot to criticize. So maybe we'll get to that. But uh, YouTube has been showing me videos of like a lot of like police interactions and police encounters and uh, like car crashes and stuff. And uh, I saw this video recently. There's a there's a YouTube channel. I think I believe it's called Active Self Protection, and they basically comment on videos that they either get sent or whatever. But a lot of times they're security cam footage of people who are uh, defending themselves against attackers. And sometimes firearms are involved. Sometimes it's just combat. But um, one of the videos that they posted was the body cam footage of a police officer in Red Bluff, which is uh, a city. Uh, I'm not sure what county it's a part of. It may be Lake County. But regardless, it's it's actually a county that I've had to interact with in my – or a, a city, rather. Uh, I've had to interact with one of their organizations uh, through my work. So I saw this video. It was like a, some sort of, you know – the title mentioned Red Bluff, which is in California. And so I was sort of interested and I watched it. And this it's this video of a, of a white man in Red Bluff, uh, possibly intoxicated, you know, likely mentally ill, um, probably a confluence of both things. But he's on, this, he's on the side of the road and he has a stick, a sort of long stick. And I'm not sure what he was doing previously that the cops were called out to him. But he's on the side of the road and as the police engage with him, he's very hostile and they begin to sort of close in on him and he there's some you know he starts walking away from them and as they try to engage him he starts to wield this stick as a weapon and at some point they draw on him and they shoot him and you see this and i was absolutely mortified because i'd seen some other videos on this channel which i i, I you know i find a lot of the commentary sort of uh, not like just kind of stupid you know um like I said, there's this idea of with a lot of gun ownership, it's one thing if it's recreational, and maybe you do want a gun for self-defense, but I think a lot of the dialogue and the conversation and the way these things are presented uh, online, and I think even amongst uh, between people who are into gun culture, is they're not being honest about their genuine interests, which is they have this hero fantasy about saving uh, about shooting people, you know, shooting bad guys and being a hero and, you know, being a cowboy, you know, and uh, there is sort of a perverse enjoyment that people get out of these videos of watching people shoot bad guys. And they and, and on some level, I think they want to be that person eventually. Um, and so when I saw this video, I was mortified because I I understand that this person was uh, threatening and was certainly hostile and was even wielding a technically a weapon, a stick. But to shoot to shoot somebody, it's not the type of thing that you deserve to lose your life for. Um, and I was just sort of looking in the comments, and I was actually really relieved because what I 
normally see on those videos is people who just say, yeah, guy got what he deserved, et cetera. And, uh, well, that's what you get for not f- for, for fucking with the police or something like that. And I was actually really relieved that most people had the same response I did. Um, we're saying this is insane. Like this is not a justified killing. And in some ways I, maybe it sounds like I'm getting off topic here. I hope to bring it back, but, um, but the actual channel channel owner like res- responded to this outpouring of, of people who were like you know really uh, critical of this video that, this, that that they posted, and their response was, "Well, this is the letter of the law. Like you know that was a potentially deadly weapon, and by the law, the police was justified." I think that that may be true, but I think a lot of what other viewers were seeing is, I'm. I hear what you're saying. I'm I'm not denying that the person was hostile and and was wielding a weapon of sorts, but it you know, and maybe even the letter of the law gives that police officer license to kill this person if they choose to. But that's not um that's not what the spirit of the law should be. That's not that's not what we want police officers doing. Um yes, it was wrong. Yes, that person did something bad, but they don't deserve to die for it. Um so I just want to be mindful of that. That's something I, that's where my mind went as I was considering this capital response. And yet, and yet, would the justification be the same or would people have the same response if this was a bunch of black protesters and they were storming the Capitol and they were met with like a military response and were, you know, they essentially, the police opened fire on a crowd of people who were storming the Capitol. Wouldn't we all have felt like that's pretty justified, Meaning you're storming a Capitol building in a mob, right? So you have this whole group of white people. If, if the police or the military or anybody had just opened fire on these people, would we have had the same response? I'm surprised that it didn't happen. You know, when I see photos of the people, I think, wow, these are just a bunch of dumb, ignorant Trump bros who, in a way, they're kind of engaging with politics on the way that we think it is. It's... um. It's, uh, it's, uh, performative. It's, uh, it's a social media event. I think people like festival goers, ironically, I think people were there for the Instagram photos. I mean, most people, once they actually got into the building, were just sort of going from office to office, taking photos of themselves. Um, why they weren't met with a, with a, with a violent opposition, I have no idea. Um, I saw this vi- video recently, you know, there's people who guard the tomb of the unknown soldier all the time, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day under any weather conditions. There are people guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. Why wasn't there people? Why, why isn't the U S Capitol, <laughs> uh, fortified the same way? And why weren't those people engaged the minute people breached the barriers or whatever happened. Uh, one woman got shot. Um, I just, uh, there's just so many questions. I just wonder how history will come to, to see this. Will this be a joke or will this be something like the Boston Tea Party? Meaning it's going to be uh, an important, you know, will January 6, 2021, be an important date in our history. And, uh, what will this, what, what kind of precedent does this set? Um, do, the next time it happens, will there be a, a military response? Um, 
Yeah, and I guess the consequences from it are kind of interesting, too. I mean, obviously, in the news, we've been talking about the, the second impeachment of Trump or Mike Pence invoking the 25th Amendment. Um, you know, it's it's sort of funny. There's a lot of things that happen in the news all the time in the minute. We start talking about it. Everybody just pretends like they're an expert on the topic. None of us even, you know, before before uh, um, a couple of days ago, none of us had thought about the 25th, 25th Amendment ever. Uh, and now all of us are talking about it like we know anything about it. But um, it's also bizarre to me. I, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the principle of the matter. But the fact that, uh, um, I mean, the fact that, you know, ostensibly Trump only has, as of today... 20 days left in office. Um, you almost wonder if it's even worth it, but I don't know. Maybe the impeachment process lasts, um, past your term even. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you just wonder what the, uh, the legacy of all this will be. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should talk about my shooting class. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like there's more to say about the capital thing. It's weird to to have a podcast and you know to be sharing your thoughts and you have this uh, event in history or current events or whatever and and you feel like you should say something about it but I I just you know I probably don't have anything else to say about it that uh, you haven't thought yourself for better or worse um, but yeah I had my shooting class I've been mentioning that for the last month or so I've had this mounting interest in and maybe. Uh, pistol shooting. And uh, it sort of started with reading Elmore Leonard and just hearing about all these different guns and then going to YouTube and kind of seeing what they look like and seeing videos of people shooting. And I've shot recreationally probably... um, I really don't know, maybe half a dozen to a dozen times in my life and never really formally. You know, I think I'm the only member of my family who doesn't own a firearm. So there have been plenty of times where I've gone out to the range and just kind of shot and, uh, but never really knew anything about guns. Never really, I didn't even know how to use the sights on a gun until yesterday, actually. Um, but I ended up taking this class. I ended, there's a, there's a, a firing range in sort of just outside the barrier. It's about 45 minutes from where I live, but it's kind of out in a, you know, more rural area of California. And they were offering this introduction to pistol shooting uh, or pistols in general, but you know, you would sit for this sort of classroom portion for a couple hours, and then they would take you to the range and let you shoot uh, 22 pistols, which coincidentally is is exactly sort of what I've been interested in as I've been looking around. Um, you know, there are larger caliber bu- bullets, which are more forceful, but um, I, I mean, I was even talking to my brother about it, and he said, well, shooting a 22 is like shooting a pellet gun. Well, I don't know. I think if anyone fired a 22, they'd realize it's a, it's a fucking gun, but um, you certainly wouldn't want to catch one of them. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, you may not be able to kill someone as easily with like a nine millimeter, but that's not really my interest. My interest is really in shooting recreationally. So for me, it, it feels just fine. Um, but I took this class and I was kind of disappointed. The classroom portion was just exactly, exactly the kind of things that you would learn. And I have seen and learned uh, just from looking at YouTube videos and learning about guns and um, if you actually want to purchase a firearm in California, you have to get a um, firearm safety certificate or something like that. Um, and it's basically like your driver's test. You have to take a written test. I think there's like 30 questions on it and you have to get like a 70%. Um, and in a way, it's sort of like, have you ever taken like sexual harassment training or anything at your work where you're ba- you have to take 
there's usually like an online sequence of slides that you have to watch. And then for each section, there's like a self-test. And the questions, or the answers to the questions, rather, are always sort of self-evident. Like, uh, you didn't have to read any of the material. And they, they it's almost like they phrase the questions so that you... It's almost laughable. They're like, uh, in the event of uh, sexual harassment, what should you do? You should, uh, uh, I don't know, set your hair on fire. You you should um, uh, start yelling and screaming or running in a circle. Or uh, immediately contact your immediate supervisor and report the issue to them. You're like, oh, I think, I think, I think I'm going to go with C. But um, the fire safety, or, or basically to take this <laughs> firearm safety class, uh, there's some literature that you have to read. And so I've read that a few times. So I think I'm just trying to say there's nothing in this class, <laughs> there's nothing in this class that you wouldn't have learned just from casually looking at stuff online and reading the safety manual. Uh, so that was not fun. But at the end of the session, uh, we did get to go to the firing range. We shot these 22s. I wish I knew a kind. You could probably Google them and search them. Um, they were kind of like, if you ever, if, I don't know, if you ever look up like um, a Ruger Mark IV or um, a Browning, uh, what is it called? Buckmark? Is that what it's called? Uh, Smith and Wesson Victory. I don't know. These sort of like target shooting pistols. I don't think it was actually any one of those, but it was kind of like that. And uh, your boy is fucking Wyatt Earp. Dude, your boy is a fucking good shot. Now, it wasn't from a long distance. It was probably like 10 yards. But if I showed you my fucking my fucking uh, target, you'd be fucking blown away. It was the target I had was sort of like Battleship. There was like these different battleships on a grid and they had like the red dots on them for bullseyes. So it's like if you hit these three bullseyes, you've essentially sunk the battleship. Well, for each magazine, I just shot at a different uh, red target. And man, my groupings are tight. I would say 90% of them were in the bullseye. And it wasn't like, uh, you know, it's not like a nickel sized or a quarter sized bullseye. It's it's pretty big. Um, but from 10 yards, you know, I got to say, I was just... I was, I'm, I was I was really proud of myself. I was also really relieved because it was something I'd been interested in. And I think if I did horribly at it, I probably would have been uh, uh, a little dissuaded from pursuing it or at least humbled. You know, I think it would have dampened some of my enthusiasm about it. But I did really fucking well. And uh, there were some problems with the gun. It jammed a lot. Um, so I had to get the instructor over. He eventually actually just grabbed another pistol. And I shot something else. But um, But by the end of it, it was like, <laughs> he comes up to me and he goes, phenomenal shooting. I mean, I am just really impressed. He's like, you clearly had some formal training. And I was like, nah. And uh, I don't know. It just, <laughs> it felt, uh, I don't know. It felt validating. Um, so, you know, if you're uh, adamantly anti-guns, you're probably going to hate this. But it's something I definitely want to do more of. Um, um there, I actually do have some time book at a at a gun shop here to actually take my certification test. Not to not because I will buy a firearm that day, but just in the event that I do want to buy one, uh, I'll already have this taken care of. But uh, yeah, it's something I'm interested in, something I want to learn more about, and something I want to pursue. But if there's any barrier to it, I gotta be honest, and uh, you know, you don't wanna. 
you don't want to stereotype people too much, but I got to tell you, both looking at videos online and just seeing the types of people, at least on YouTube, who are adamantly about gun culture, there are plenty of people who I think are are, are very smart and intelligent, and I think are exactly, you know, if I did want to shoot more, these are the types of people that I would want to take, um, I would want to look to for instruction, and I would want to emulate in terms of their respect for firearms. There's a, there's a great channel called Hickok45. He's an older guy, lives out in Tennessee, I think he's mentioned. And he has this a lot of land in a compound. He's got a firing range on it. And he just sh- shoots a lot of guns. But he's a very endearing older guy, not, uh, you know, not uh, some, uh, you know, the type of person that you can probably imagine. I mean, a lot of people who are into guns are these sort of Zoftic, um, Pillsbury, Doughboy type white boys uh, uh, who's, you know, they sort of see themselves as like deputized to be peacemakers. And, um, and it's just kind of laughable, but, uh, you dude, when you go to the gun shop, when you go to the firing range, that's most of the people that you see there. And the people who were working this joint were like out of a fucking comic book. I don't know what it is about California. Look, this is literally and I'm not supposed to be saying literally, but this is <laughs> this is literally 20 minutes outside of the Bay Area, and you go to this place, and it's like a it's like a fish and hunting shop, and they have a gun range in their basement, and the people who I don't every the guy who taught the instruction class, the people who were facilitating the counter, working the counter for the gun range, they all spoke with de- accents from the Deep South, and I'm like, what the fuck's we're in California, the the kid behind the counter was rude as fuck. He had a packed lip of tobacco the entire time when he's talking to people and nobody's wearing a mask. Thankfully, our instructor was and everybody in the, there was only um, uh, four people in the class, including myself. And by the way, I was the only male. It was three other females. It was a mother, a daughter and, uh, and uh, just another woman by herself. And uh, I thought that was very interesting, but um, we all wore masks, our teacher wore masks, and uh, we actually did a, you know, as best we could about staying apart from each other, so I actually felt pretty safe taking the class. But everybody else in the store who was working was not wearing masks, and many of the people who came in just to shoot were not wearing masks. And it was just a stark reminder, you know, especially following this capital thing where you think, oh yeah, this, uh, we really live in like two separate countries, you know, I live in the core of the Bay Area and probably one of the more, probably one of the most liberal, uh, hippy dippy cities in the United States. And the fact that you can drive 20 minutes outside of that city and just feel like you're in a different part of the country, it's just mind blowing to me. Um, I've mentioned the Lefsetz letter. Bob Lefsetz is a kind of a music business commentary guy. He has this mailing list that I subscribe to and He's been writing a lot of impassioned emails lately about, um, you know, just people who don't take the pandemic seriously. And I felt bad enough about even going to the range to begin with. But to see there are so many people out there who just don't care and just treat it like it's no big deal. And if they were to hear me talk about it or if I even commented on them not wearing a mask, they would look at me like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's too easy to think this on the heels of the whole Capitol event, but it just... It really just goes to show you that we're on two separate pages in this country, and uh, we're all we're both looking at each other like the other person's fucking insane. And I guess sometimes it's weird for me as someone who finds there are things on both sides of the aisle that I'm kind of interested in and I I want to pursue. I don't 
necessarily feel beholden to any one side, but you know, I don't know. Um, I guess the one funny part too, is as someone like myself, you know, the, the people who are most into gun culture, it's almost like they live in California, but they, they have this, you know, California is very restrictive on its gun laws, especially like semi-automatic pistols. Like, uh, they have a approved list of, of new semi-automatic, semi-automatic pistols that you can purchase. And if the gun that you're wanting to buy, the manufacturer and the make is not on this list, you cannot buy it new in California. Um, and so it's been, as I've been sort of shopping around and kind of doing my research, it's, it's been disappointing to find things that I was really interested in and only to learn after doing a lot of looking at it. Oh shit. It's not, I forgot. It's not even on the list. I can't buy it. But it's funny how people inside gun culture, you know, our instructor was talking about it this way, videos that I see online talk about it this way, but there's this very adversarial um, uh, attitude about a lot of gun owners inside the state of California and the laws that they want to pass. Um, I, I get that. I mean, as someone who wants to buy a pistol, I'm obviously disappointed if I find something that I like and decide, oh shit, I can't buy that. Um but I guess in the other way, I, I sort of understand it's just trying to keep people safe. You know, I don't want to go it, it, in a way. It's sort of like the response with mask wearing, right? Like, as I've said, I've been connected to this creative person who's become part of the alt right now. And a lot of it is like, they talk about the whole quarantining as like an infringement on their rights, which is in this country, we talk about freedom. This is not a free country in the last year. You've had your freedom of movement taken away. You've been forced to wear a muzzle on pain of being socially ostracized. And this is not freedom. And and it's like, but don't you understand that they're trying to curb the impact of a global pandemic? It's not like someone just woke up one day and decided that they were going to impinge your freedom of movement. There is a method to the madness. And it's not fun. But we're trying to accomplish something. Um it's sort of the same thing with firearms. I mean, I, I understand, you know, we want to, it's almost like a, maybe this is exactly what they hate about it, but I was going to say, it's kind of like a child, like children don't like rules, but your parents care about you. They want you to be safe. Now, of course, sometimes we go too far in one direction because there is, especially with guns, there's a political slash performative aspect about the gun laws, right? And and if and I'm not going to bore you with them, but yeah, when you look at some of what California is asking for, uh, the standards that they're asking for, um, you know, some handguns to meet are are pretty silly and could easily uh, be circumnavigated by any criminal, right? And so when you evaluate it that way, you think, yeah, it is just kind of making law-abiding law uh, gun owners just jump through a lot of hoops that they really shouldn't have to since the criminals could easily circumnavigate these laws anyway and just keep doing what they're doing. But anyway, um, it's that sort of uh, us-against-them mentality, you know? Um that sort of foments and I guess I'm just saying it's not a surprise to me that there are a whole contingency of people in this country who just think like they need to rise up and they think the government's against them and they think it's us versus them. And part of it, I mean, is partly justified. I mean, I, I think there's something about, you know, when people talk about the election of Trump, they say, well, there's an entire population of people who have been ignored by the political conversation. Um, and I'm not sure that's the right way to put it, but, you know, even going to the range, I mean, there are there are entire populations of people in this country that we openly demean and talk about as if they don't matter. And we talk about them as if they're stupid and that they're ignorant. And uh, a lot of that may be true, 
But little wonder then that they find someone who's a champion for them and makes them feel like, um, you know, yeah, all the people who've been talking shit about you, uh, yeah, they're the dumb ones. So let's rise up and, and fight against them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just not surprised. <clears throat> anyway, we talked about the Capitol. We talked about work. We talked about shooting. Um, I'm sort of looking at the clock here. I told myself that when I ran out of things to say, I was just going to stop whether we reach an hour or not. But I, I'm not really sure what else to talk about except uh, all the movies and uh, the reading I've been doing. I mentioned I was um, I'm reading a, The Adolescent by Dostoevsky, and it's <clears throat> it's the it, I think. It's not, it's never really been regarded as like a very good novel, but it's 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 also surprising that it's the novel he wrote right before Brothers Karamazov, and it's kind of confusingly bad considering that the the next novel he would write uh, would be widely considered like one of the greatest novels ever written, and he had already written Crime and Punishment. Like, and I guess I'm sort of I was thinking because in our last episode we talked about Kurosawa, and I've lo- I watched a lot of other types of movies in the last week, but I was mentioning Throne of Blood which is Kurosawa's adaptation of Macbeth. And I was saying, it's just sort of surprising to me because, you know, people really celebrate Throne of Blood. And I remember saying I liked it a lot when I was younger, but I think mostly it was because I liked Macbeth and I liked Kurosawa. And so it made sense to sort of celebrate this movie. But as I was watching it now as an adult, it sort of affirmed what I think I'd I'd always recognized about it and just, you know, I don't want to say it was too scared, but you know what I mean. Um, when you're younger and you're watching movies, you're sort of looking to uh, the canon, right, to sort of tell you what you're supposed to like. And it's, you know, I didn't know anyone else liking Kurosawa, so I just wanted to celebrate Kurosawa movies, right? So, but when I watch them as an adult, or I watch Throne of Blood as an adult, I think, yeah, this movie is kind of boring, and it's not as good as Seven Samurai, you know, which was made before Throne of Blood. And they're very different stories, but I even mean technically. You know, if you had shown me Throne of Blood and then shown me Seven Samurai and said, which is the, which is the work of a, uh, uh, which is a more younger work of a director, I would, uh, I would say hands down Throne of Blood. You know, if Throne of Blood was one of Kurosawa's first movies or at least predated Seven Samurai, that would make perfect sense to me. Um, it's, I feel the same way about The Adolescent. I'm reading it and I'm going, for someone who had already written Crime and Punishment and was a, and is about to write The Brothers Karamazov, this is a confusingly bad book. It's narratively bad. The, the plot is needlessly um, confusing. The characters are melodramatic. Um, and the narrator is fucking annoying. You know? It's, uh, it's just, it feels like an early novel. It almost feels like this could have been Dostoevsky's first novel. So strange. So I'm glad it's going to be over. Um, as someone like myself, who's a bit of a completist, I mean, like with Kurosawa, I would love to say I've seen all Kurosawa's movies or, um, you know, who says, oh, I'm just going to listen to Beethoven for a year. I'm just going to listen to Brahms for a year. As a completist, as an aspiring completist, I'm glad I'll be able to say that I read it. But uh, I wish I was... You know, I think by the end of it, it's about 550 pages. I wish I was 550 pages into Brothers Karamazov, uh, which I will read eventually. Um, And also, I guess I'm wondering about translators also, because, you know, I've I've read a lot of Dostoevsky in the last couple of years, and most of the translations I've read 
Uh, or maybe even half of them, I should say. But there's uh, a pair of translators now. It's uh, Richard Prevere and something Voloskonsky. I forget her first name. But they're a married couple, and they translate basically any Russian writer they can get their hands on by this point. But they have made very celebrated translations of War and Peace, Anna Karenina, Brothers Karamazov, most of Dostoevsky, Gogol, um, Lermont, uh, is it Lermontov? Uh, I don't think so. But anyway, they've translated just a shit ton of Russian novels and literature and stories. And I'm starting to wonder, because I read The Idiot, I read, or maybe, maybe this will clarify. I read their translations of Notes from Underground, The Idiot, uh, Demons, and now The Adolescent. And I was planning on doing Brothers Karamazov as well, but I'm starting to wonder if maybe it's the translator. <laughs> because it's just kind of flat. There's just something very flat. And I don't know if their translation is more literal because I sort of turned to them because they were sort of celebrated recently. People have been saying that they're sort of the new standard of translators. And people were saying like uh, Constance Garnett is, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, is a sort of famous translator of Dostoevsky. I think probably previously was the standard. I, I'm pretty sure I read their translation of uh, Crime and Punishment from the um, not Dover Thrift. Um, what's the series? Uh, it might be Dover. But anyway, there is these sort of, uh, like, critical editions that you find of these books. If I could, you, you would know what I was talking about if I could, if I could mention. I think that's Garnett's translation in there. But that was a very thrilling translation of Crime and Punishment. Now, I don't know if it's literally accurate to Dostoevsky, but I don't fucking read Russian. And, uh, so I guess I'm just wondering if when I read Brothers Karamazov, um, and these are the types of decisions I have to make in my life, folks, but do I read the Pavir and Voloskonsky translation, or do I read Yield Standard? Uh, because fucking Karamazov is a big book. You don't want to, you don't want to fucking go in the wrong direction. You don't want to find your 500 pages into a translation that you don't like, right? So I don't know. You know what's surprising? Actually, now that I'm thinking about this, our MVP from last year, and maybe we're, <laughs> wait, was I supposed? Oh shit! Was I supposed to announce a new MVP? Uh, I completely forgot to do that. But our MVP from last year, Matt Evans, my boy, uh, he read Brothers Karamazov. Surprisingly, uh, he just—we were on the phone recently. and He goes, "Oh yeah, I just—I just finished that." And I'm like, "How the fuck have you been reading Brothers Karamazov?" And I don't fucking know about it. Just when you think you know somebody, they fucking change on you and they fucking surprise you. It's like, bro, I've been seeing your life through a keyhole. How the fuck did I not know that you were fucking reading that novel? But anyway. We'll ask him about it, and uh, maybe he'll decide for me. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying that it's not great, and if you don't read that book, that's totally fine. I think you'll be okay. Just read, uh, you know, I don't know, read Crime and Punishment, probably read Brothers Karamazov, um, and read, uh, you know, you don't even really need to read Notes from Underground. That's one of those things that a lot of people read that it's... It's fine. It's not great, though. I think people like it because it's short. <laughs> and uh, But I don't think it's his best. I think actually The Double, which I think was actually written, I think was one of the first things that Dostoevsky wrote after Poor Folk, is way, it, 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 it feels way more mature than even The Adolescent, surprisingly. It's a novella, but it's, uh, it's almost Gogol-esque in its like, absurdity. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's better than I would say Notes from Underground, and it's better than... Um, the Adolescent. And he has one novella called The Gambler. I think you can actually buy the Pavir and Voloskonsky translation of uh, The Gambler and The Double are actually bound together. 
I think. But um, uh, the gambler is less, you know, there aren't as many big ideas, but it's just a good tale. And actually, I was talking with my brother recently. It's funny how this all comes together. We were talking about, he's reading a book now called, not Necronomicon. <laughs> he's going to laugh when he hears that. I, I, he's reading some big ass book and he was sort of equating it to, um, <laughs> I almost want to call him right now and ask him what that book is called, but, <clears throat> but, uh, it's some big ass book and he was just talking about how we were just, just sort of wondering how people create these or, or finish these huge tomes like Infinite Jest or, uh, even Brothers Karamazov. And I was saying, well, you know, The Gambler, which is a novella, but it's probably about at least 150 pages uh, of Dostoevsky. He wrote it in some insanely short amount of time. I think when I was on the phone with my brother, I said two weeks. <laughs> but it may have been like two months or something like that. But he, I don't know, he had some sort of obligation he needed to meet, he needed to meet for a, uh, I think, a publisher. And... Uh, I don't know, there was some deal that was going on and he had to fulfill some, some one requirement before he could engage in another business dealing or something. But he, he just basically, this story just sort of poured out him very quickly. And it's just, uh, it's always discouraging. But I was saying, uh, I mean, the adolescent, when you read it, feels like, you're almost reading it and you're sort of upset by it because it almost feels like someone's just literally, which I'm not supposed to be saying, but they're literally making it up as they go along. Um as if the narrative is just sort of pouring out of them and they hadn't really thought it through before they began like this podcast a lot of times. But, um, but, uh, Oh, I was also saying William Golding, surprisingly, his novel Lord of the Flies. I think, I think the story is that it was written over six weeks by hand, which is interesting. I mean, that's a classic of the repertoire as well. And to think that that was written over such a short amount of time by hand, no less. And actually, Elmore Leonard, surprisingly, writes all of his novels by hand, too. I saw an interview with Elmore Leonard, and he writes uh, all of his novels by hand. They then get typed up, but I just thought that that was an interesting uh, interesting fact of information. I mean, it even reminds me of um, uh, David Foster Wallace. He's sort of a go-to of mine when I think about this topic, but he was someone who was obviously very uncomfortable with celebrity. But I think... Um, you know, authors always um, make fun of this idea or any creative people when they get asked the question, where do you get your ideas from? I mean, Stephen King, who we've talked a lot about uh, on the podcast recently, talks about this also. You know, that's the question he gets asked more than anything else. And David Foster Wallace used to complain or lament the question that he always got, which is, what's your process? And I, I can't quote him exactly, and I don't remember what the process was specifically, but he prefaced his answer by saying, I could tell you, but it's not going to mean anything to you because it's just not going to help you. And I think he said, like, he, like, writes it up and then he, like, writes th that by hand and then he types it up again. And he has this whole, like, he just does whatever he does, you know, whatever he thinks he needs to do. He just started doing it one day and that's how he did it. And he probably hasn't given it a lot of thought. But a lot of us, when we're starting out on a process, we want to be told what to do. Like, and now I feel like I've talked about this before, but one thing I always remember is when I was working at a restaurant, um, someone had, I had found or someone had left behind. I don't know what it was. It was either a cassette or a CD, this box set of a person who was uh, speaking to a Catholic congregation. You know, he was sort of a 
Catholic uh, speaker. You know, there's this whole population of people who make a career just speaking to church congregations. They're not pastors. They're just sort of religious figures. And they homilize, if that's the word. But they just, they they tour and they they speak to congregations and they just share their message. They're almost like self-help um, they're like the Tony Robbins of, of, the, of Catholics, but they, of course they have them for Protestants and, and all sorts of faiths, I'm sure. And I don't remember what the talk was, and I don't remember what the goal of it was, but the thing I, I will always remember is he started off, whatever the beginning of this process was, is he says, now the first thing you're going to do is you're going to buy a notebook. And he, he says, now, uh, you know, 90% of you will not go on to do the next step, but nearly all of you will do the first step because that's who we are as people. We like to buy things. We will buy the notebook, but we will not do what it takes to actually begin the work. Because once we buy the notebook, we get to tell ourselves that we've started the process. We haven't really done anything, but at least we tick that mental box as if we've begun the project. That's what I think is behind people wanting to know like what uh, should I buy a typewriter? What type of pencils should I use? What type of paper should I use? Um, in a way, it's like it's it's like looking at pistols or something. A lot of us like to fetishize gear. Good dude, musicians are this way. What kind of guitar should I buy? What kind of pickup should I have in it? What 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 gauge string should I have? What kind of tone should I use? It's like ninety percent of your tone is going to be in your technique, like cameras, like photography. Um, just buy something and work it. Just learn how to use that fucking piece of machinery. Master the fundamentals, which you can master on any device. And things are going to have the limitations, but you have to hit that wall yourself. You know, you have to learn it yourself. Um, so anyway, what the fuck am I talking about? I don't know. David Foster Wallace technique. Um, where do you get your ideas from? Uh, how do we do things? I don't fucking know. I'd like to um <clears throat> I'd like to kind of bring things full circle though by thinking about movies. I watch a lot of movies this week, which I've been doing my my whole break. I've been watching like a a movie a day, sometimes <laughs> sometimes more. Um uh let's see. I watched Sexy Beast, which is a classic. I saw that in theaters actually. That was one of those movies that I didn't know what it was, but it happened to be playing at a nearby theater right up the street from me when I was living in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, they played big movies there, but they also had little sort of art house films. And so <clears throat> I didn't know anything about this movie. I, I think I probably just showed it to the theater and just saw what, you know, what, what looks good and is playing soon. And it was Sexy Beast. Um, I believe my brother actually saw it with me, too. But I loved this movie and uh, didn't know what I was getting into. And I think it was actually one of the few movies where I was sitting in the front row, which is normally a nightmare when you're at the movie theater. But I, I remember sitting in the front row for this movie. Um and loved it. It's funny. Ben Kingsley, you know, there's, if there's one thing I love in movies, it's a good villain. And for some reason, I'm thinking of Gary Oldman in Leon, the professional, uh, obviously one of the great villains. Uh, but there's something about there's, there's actually two great villains in this movie. There's, um, uh, Ben Kingsley, who's exceptional. He, it's really his movie, even though Ray Winstone is, is phenomenal as well in this movie. Ben Kingsley really, really steals the show. And then the other actor who who plays um, uh, oh gosh I can't remember his name in Deadwood but he's the villain in Deadwood Sal 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 Winger or 
uh, some fucking weird name. Anyway, I was as I was thinking about this, I could summon these names very easily. Uh, I, I believe it's Timothy Oliphant is the actor's name, but he's also an incredible villain. So this movie has not one but two great villains, and uh, Ray Winstone is awesome too. Very funny and just very colorful crime movie. And then I rewatched, which I hadn't seen in probably twenty years or whenever it. I don't want to say when it first came out. But uh, at least 15 years ago, I saw this documentary called Capturing the Freedmans. And uh, it is one of the darkest, mercurial, most mercurial, I should say, so I can alliterate. Darkest, most mercurial, nebulous documentaries I've ever seen. And disturbing as fuck. But so well done and mostly made of just found footage and it's basically the story of this family the freedmans who were living in long island uh i forget the name of the neighborhood but they're living in long island their father uh is a very they use a great nebbish was the word that somebody used to describe him which i had never heard before it really stuck out to me when i was watching this he was described as nebbish which is sort of a timid sort of anti-sexual type of person just kind of nerdish right um and he was, uh, he, you know, he was a he was a piano teacher. He taught some computer pl- classes in their basement, and all of a sudden, there's this allegation. Uh, there, he gets caught in trafficking child pornography. Basically, uh, some a piece of mail gets intercepted, whereby the FBI or whoever looks at this stuff determined that he might be interested in child pornography. And when they were investigating him, they cracked the seal, and and they realized they could be. Uh, they may have stumbled onto something much more pernicious. And so I don't want to ruin it for you because really the the enjoyment of the documentary is just sort of walking through it and just being flabbergasted at how deep it potentially goes. But then also the flip of going, whoa, now I don't know what to fucking believe. And by the end of it, it's just a kaleidoscope and fractured of, you know something deeply disturbing has taken place, but it's hard to really know how to place it. So uh, if you haven't seen that documentary, you should. I watched, uh, for the second time again, I think I've rewatched most of these movies, but I rewatched Mad Max Fury Road, which fucking sucks. Um, I think I had been watching so much serious shit that I was eager to just watch kind of a bullshit popcorn movie. And for some reason, I remember really liking it the first time I saw it. And so I watched it, and it's, it's you know, some thrilling sequences, I guess, and it's kind of cool stylistically, but ultimately it's just kind of vacuous. And, uh, and in some ways, it's sort of... I don't want to get on a pedestal here, but I'm also thinking of David Foster Wallace, as I say this, who has this great quote about the Oscars. And it's probably, it's, it's, it's probably from one of his uh, essays and that's been anthologized somewhere. But this idea where, you know, we sort of pretend that a lot of the, the Hollywood movie making machine, it sort of pretends that it's art, but really it, it's not. It's just sort of kind of baseless and vacuous. It kind of has that feel to it, where it's very visually stimulating, but at the end of the day, there's really not a lot going on. So if you're looking for a distraction, I guess you could watch it, but uh, but otherwise, uh, I wouldn't bother with it, honestly. Um, I had begun to watch this movie years ago and never finished it, but I ended up watching Wild Strawberries, which is the Ingmar Bergman film, which I, for years, had thought was his last film for some reason. And I guess it makes sense because it's about a, a man who's sort of at the end of the at the end of his life, and it's like it's like it's sort of a Scrooge like story. And I there was something. Oh, actually, Ikiru was in a, was a Kurosawa movie that I watched recently. It's kind of the same thing. It's somebody who's at the end of their life 
who's reflecting on it, and we sort of get some flashbacks on their development, and we and they sort of come to realize that maybe they've wasted their life, and at the end of their life, they want to they want to change at the last minute. They want to finally do something meaningful with their life. And I remember watching, starting to watch this movie when I was younger and never finishing it. So I watched it. It's pretty good. It's much better than The Seventh Seal, which is a movie that I also rewatched at some point in the last couple months and never talked about on the podcast. But um, The Seventh Seal is really fucking disappointing <laughs> when you watch it. Like, the core idea of this knight who's returning from the Crusades who meets death and in order to delay his own uh, his own demise engages death in a game of chess, and he gets to live as long as the game goes on. There's a whole lot more to the story that really fucking sucks. And uh, it's just a little over-ponderous, and it's just, I don't know. I think Seven Seal is very overrated. I just don't think it's that great. Wild Strawberries is actually much more fun to watch. Uh, it's obviously a little dated, but uh, it, just in terms of, of pure enjoyment, it's much more enjoyable to watch. Uh, than the Seven Seal. Although I did stumble on this thing, and I'd like to read it to you. I'm not sure what'll come of it. Maybe it'll just kill some time. But as I, after I watched the Seven Seal, I was just kind of looking around online, and I don't know how I stumbled on this, but I stumbled on a library scan of the script for Seven Seal. That was at some point it was published, and I don't like to read scripts. Some people do. Some people love to read like. Tenet, as soon as, like, or Inception, I don't know why I'm sticking with Christopher Nolan, but even, like, Tarantino movies, like, you can buy the script. Um, I don't know how, how, you know, I don't know if these scripts are actually altered, I don't know if they were the shooting scripts, I don't know if they were edited after the movie came out, or if they're kind of reductions, like, you know how, like, they used to do this thing where they would novelize movies? Um, I, I don't know. But there is some script of The Seventh Seal, which was in a library at some point, and I was just kind of looking through it. And Ingmar Bergman wrote this really interesting introduction, which I just want to read to you. Um, I'm, I'm not really going to go into the ideas here now, but it's just something interesting to read, and there's something in this that I deeply relate to. And I think it also points to something which is, even though you watch a movie like The Seventh Seal and it's not that enjoyable, you also know that you're in the presence of art. And there's something about that core idea, which is why even though a lot of us don't, maybe even haven't seen Seventh Seal, but the reason that movie has penetrated into the culture is because there's something about that core idea about a knight coming home from the Crusades who wants to uh, delay his own death by engaging uh, death, persona, the person of death in a game of chess. Um, there's something about that core idea that speaks to us for, in, in some way. And Ingmar Bergman wrote this introduction to the script that I want to read to you now. That I think, uh, I don't know, it speaks to that idea. So here we go. People ask, what are my intentions with my films, my aims? It is a difficult and dangerous question, and I usually give an evasive answer. I try to tell the truth about the human condition, the truth as I see it. This answer seems to satisfy everyone, but it is not quite correct. I prefer to describe what I would like my aim to be. There is an old story of how the cathedral of some French name, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, it looks like Chart, <laughs> but with a C. Uh, <laughs> some more Creed humor for, this, for the 69th episode. Uh, the cathedral of Chart was struck by lightning and burned to the ground. Then thousands of people came from all points of the compass, like a giant procession of ants, and together they began to rebuild the cathedral on its old site. They worked until the building was completed 
master builders, artists, laborers, clowns, noblemen, priests, burglars, but they all remained anonymous, and no one knows to this day who built the cathedral of Chartres. Regardless of my own beliefs and my own doubts, which are unimportant in this connection, it is my opinion that art lost its basic creative drive the moment it was separated from worship. It, se- it severed an umbilical cord and now lives its own sterile life, generating and degenerating itself. In former days, the artist remained unknown and his work was to the glory of God. He lived and died without being more or less important than other artists. Eternal values, immortality, and masterpiece were terms not applicable in this case. The ability to create was a gift. In such a world flourished invulnerable assurance and natural humility. Today, the individual has become the highest form and the greatest bane of artistic creation. The smallest wound or pain of the ego is examined under a microscope as if it were of eternal importance. The artist considers his isolation, his subjectivity, his individualism almost holy. Thus, we finally gather in one large pen, where we stand and bleed about our loneliness without listening to each other and without realizing that we are smothering each other to death. The individualists stare into each other's eyes and yet deny the existence of each other. We walk in circles, so limited by our own anxieties that we can no longer distinguish between true and false, between the gangster's whim and the purest ideal. Thus, if I am asked what I would like the general purpose of my films to be, I would reply that I want to be one of the artists in the Cathedral of the Great Plain. I want to make a dragon's head, an angel, a devil, or perhaps a saint out of stone. It does not matter which. It is the sense of satisfaction that counts. Regardless of whether I believe or not, whether I am a Christian or not, I would play my part in the collective building of the Cathedral. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Uh, there's a lot that really speaks to me, uh, especially as someone like myself who's been an atheist his whole life, and yet, especially in the last you know, six or seven years or so, I have found, I've always been interested in religion, but there's, there's a spiritual something that I uh, feel sort of called to consider and think about um, that's made me change the way I think about art. And we've talked about it on the podcast, the idea of the artist as the shaman, as, uh, you know, um, the personification of the muse, not being in dereliction of duty, that there's, there's something about our, our job as artists is that we are the myth makers of, of the world. And it's our job to sort of treat our art with that kind of, uh, spiritual seriousness. Um, because otherwise, you know, we're gifted these ideas by the cosmos. And if we don't do them justice, if we don't do them well, if we let them become watered down by our own personal shortcomings or, uh, commercialism or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, it's not just to our own detriment. It's, it's really, we're in dereliction of duty. It's to the detriment of, of society. We're not fulfilling our role, um, that we've been, uh, deputized with. Um, but there's a lot there. Um, there's so much here I wanted to go into. I mean, I, what else did I see? I saw 2001. Um, I watched, uh, the 400 blows, which was phenomenal. Um, Less impressive was Eight and a Half by Fellini, which I really expected to really like. In some ways, as I was reading that Bergman quote, it made me think of part of why I think Eight and a Half is kind of disappointing. It's really a micro study of 
the creative process, but in a way that also feels kind of self-aggrandizing. I don't know. We don't really have time to go in it. There's two, there's two movies here that maybe we'll have to visit next week that I really, that I loved. And I, I really have a lot of thoughts on. We don't have time to go into it here, but I'll at least name them. So if you want to watch them between now and next week, next week, not as a homework assignment, just for your own enjoyment. One is an, is a movie from 1996 starring, um, Julianne Moore, uh, is it Todd Hames? <laughs> Who's the fucking director's name? I don't know. But it's, a, it's with Julianne Moore. It's from the mid-90s. It's called Safe. S-A-F-E. Safe. This movie hit me like a fucking ton of bricks. It's about uh, a housewife in uh, the San Fernando Valley in the mid-80s. Uh, and it's just about her life and the fact that she has no problems. And all of a sudden, there's this creeping sense that she's allergic to something in her environment. And she begins to develop these environmental sensitivities. And you watch it, and it's not a comedy. It's a fucking horror movie. And it just, uh, it's just phenomenal. I have a thousand thoughts about it, um, but maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it next week. And then in another way, I was when, when we first started this podcast, I was talking about taking decisive action. You know, otherwise things that we sit with just sort of fester. And sometimes we watch movies, especially true stories, about the types of situations that people live in. And I just think, I don't know how you function. You know, speaking of Dostoevsky, you read Crime and Punishment. The entire novel, the drama of the novel is someone who killed someone and just living with the, the truth of that, living with the guilt of the fact that they killed someone and the, the, the sort of encroaching criminal aspect. I mean, we've talked about it in terms of uh, police interrogations videos that we watch. People who are facing the reality of what they were trying to avoid for years, running from the law, lying... I, it's just insane to me that people could 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 live with that kind of guilt. Um, the movie I watched, it's an HBO movie. You probably have to have HBO to watch it, but it's called Bad Education with Hugh Jackman. Fucking incredible. I watched it last night. Um, it's it's just an incredible movie. It's It's really engrossing. It's really entertaining. Hugh Jackman is fucking phenomenal in this movie, and I've never really considered him a great actor. Everybody was talking about how great Logan was the sort of final Wolverine movie. I, I, I don't know. I didn't think it was that great. But in this movie, he's legitimately awesome. And uh, it's just a great movie about uh, corruption. But it also does a great job of, you know, not, not, uh, not in, as a way to explain away people's actions. I mean, the, 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 the criminals in this movie are, are criminals. But really trying to explain how they justify their behavior to themselves. And also what was probably motivating a lot of that behavior how they rationalize it. And of course, especially watching this movie, it, you see it as an allegory for our entire political system. You know, people just are on the take. And how do they justify that to themselves? And what does it take? What type of personality does it take to recognize this? And the courage it takes to sort of call people out on it and really pursue things to their end, d- despite the consequences that they could have. And it's just a... Hugh Jackman's character is just fascinating and he does a wonderful job with it. And... um Anyway, we've gone way over time, and uh, maybe in my efforts to make more bullet points and to not be as, uh, I mean, really the last episode was really disappointing for me. So maybe in my efforts to uh, not repeat that, I maybe I overshot the mark this time. But that's okay. I still feel better about it. And, uh, you know, they, they never feel perfect, but... Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And please take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars, you know, 
you know, just type why you like the podcast. I haven't looked at the reviews in forever. There was a couple shitty ones, which I vehemently disagreed with, and, and I sort of vowed I would never look at those again. So uh, I may not see it, but, you know, when you put up a good review, it really helps uh, maybe sway people who would otherwise are, are on the fence about checking out the podcast. So please type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. If you can think of someone in your life you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. And uh, in the meantime, you know, I'll keep living my life. You keep living yours. Be safe. And uh, till the next time. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now. <laughs>